Idolatry has always been the problem. Always, always, always. My friend Charles Spurgeon in London back in the 1800s said it this way. He said, the whole history of the human race is a record of the wars of the Lord against idolatry. Spurgeon is rarely wrong. And he was not wrong here. The whole history of the human race is a record of the wars of the Lord against idolatry. You know, this is true as we look into the history of the Bible. We look in, into the Old Testament, like especially as you think about the Exodus event. You remember that, that event when God rescues the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and he leads them out? That wasn't just a rescue. That was a rescue with a massive point. God rescued his people through those 10 plagues, showing that he alone is God. And the gods of Egypt did not exist. They were a joke. You know, the God, Egypt, they worshiped the frog God and the cow God, and they worshiped the Nile as God and all this. And, and so the plagues were, they were systematically designed to show the gods of Egypt are not gods, only the God of Israel. So, yes, God simultaneously rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, but he also made a point in the war against idolatry that Egyptians should repent of worshiping those gods and turn to him, and Israelites should repent of worshiping those gods and turn to him. Idolatry has always been the problem. The first exodus showed God displaying his glory and exposing the futility of false gods. And in Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 15, we find the Exodus 2.0. You know, it's one of these uh, facets of biblical theology that, that often what God does is he'll take an event in the past, especially from the Old Testament, and that event points to a greater work that he is going to do through the Messiah. And so that earlier Exodus, that actually points to a greater rescue mission, a, a greater moment of salvation that God accomplished through Jesus rescuing his people, the church. But in Revelation 15, the Exodus 2.0 works just like the Exodus 1.0, meaning we have this, this revelation of God's victory that he gives to his church. There's a celebration. There's a song of rejoicing. We see a victorious crowd, right? And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But even as we see this victory, there's also a judgment where God says, I alone am the God who's worthy of worship. And he pours out his wrath and judgment against the world in rebellion against him. Now, you might be sitting here this morning thinking, what in the world does any of this have to do with me? Because I'm not a slave in Egypt. And I'm not sure how Revelation 15 fits into my week this week. Well, the fact is, in some senses, we are living in Egypt. Meaning, we're living in a context where we are consistently exposed to idolatry. It's all around us. And the fact is, because of our own brokenness, we often give in to worshiping those false gods. Again, idolatry has always been the problem. But make no mistake, God is at war with our idolatry. He has gone to great lengths to rescue us from those false gods. You know, there are three ways I think this hits you this morning just as we get into this passage. The first is, of course, you're tempted to idolatry. We're all tempted to worship the gods of our age. But secondly, we're, we're also experiencing, living in Egypt, a, a some degree of persecution. Where if we say no to the gods of our age, 
we will look different than the people around us. And so we will face potentially persecution at the bare minimum awkward moments in our culture. So yes, we will face a degree of persecution for saying no to those false gods. And third, we live in a culture of skepticism that God exists, that God is good, that he is just. In our culture, you cannot assume that people believe that God exists. If people believe that God exists, you cannot assume they believe that he is good. And if they believe he is good, you cannot assume that they believe he is just. Part of the problem is that we've experienced so much injustice. We see it around us. We see the brokenness of this world. And sometimes we wonder, God, why would you allow that? What are you doing? Will you ever make it right? And of course, as we've seen glimpses in Revelation, there are these promises that, yes, the day is coming when God will make it right. And Revelation 15 is the introduction to the day of final reckoning, the the final outpouring of God's wrath against those who are in rebellion against him. And since we struggle with the same idolatry, right, since we struggle with these, these same issues, there's a message here for us that helps us say no to the false gods of our Egypt. So let's get into these, uh, these first few verses here in chapter 15 and see what's going on, right? In verse 1, the, the vision continues. And again, this is a transitional chapter to get us into the seven bowls. If, just to remind you from ages past, we had uh, the seven seals where six seals were broken, right? And then we lead to then the seventh seal being broken leads into the seven trumpets, Okay, but that seventh trumpet, there was a pause there, and now we're finally getting to the seven bowls, right? So here we go in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. There's a lot of hope here, even in the midst of the, the difficulty of it. First of all, of course, the word plagues itself links us back to that Exodus event. So we're going to see a lot of verbal links here to back to the Exodus event, again, with the assumption or the the point that it's the Exodus 2.0 and God saving the church, right? So now we have these seven angels that have the seven last plagues, and we'll see those in the bowls in the weeks to come. But with those seven last plagues, what do we have? We have God's wrath being completed. This is a really good sentence. Because it means that there will be a day when finally the wrongs are made right and it's done. The work is finished. You know, it, it will actually be complete. Um, we have, we've had some yard work over at the Boys and Inch that we've been working on this year, uh, trying to get some stumps out of the yard. And, uh, and so we've been working hard to try to get these stumps. And by we, I mean Jack has been working really hard to try to get the, <laughs> the stumps out, you know. Uh, and Jacob, for that matter, his buddies helped him out a little bit. Uh, so slowly but surely, we've made progress. But I tell you what, you look at that yard, and I just think there are more stumps <laughs> that have to come out, you know. It's like, is the work ever going to be done? And sometimes we feel that way, don't we? It's like, oh, there's, there's more wrong. There's, there's, more, there's more evil. There's more rebellion against God. There's more, there's more brokenness, and, it, and it's not been dealt with. And it's just like, is this ever going to get done? And passages like this passage offer us hope where God says, yes, there will be a day where my wrath will be completed. I will pour it out. I will deal with the wrongs, and it will be done. So there's great hope for us in the midst of that. But it's not just hope that God's wrath will be completed. It's hope because God is doing this work of rescuing his own. Watch verse 2. Again, anticipating the looking forward to the end here, he says, I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, 
its image, and the number of its name. They were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. So just don't mix it, okay? We had, don't miss it. We had a, a reference to plagues. We had plagues in the original Exodus in Egypt, right? And now we have re- reference to this sea. Now, this is a sea of glass that kind of sits right before the throne of God, and that's consistent in the, the visions of God's heavenly throne room that we've seen in, in the Bible. So we've got this sea there, but that, that word sea, just the word sea, also links us back to the Exodus moment. Because you remember when God rescued his people, he put them in a situation where they were backed up against a sea, right? The Reed Sea or the Red Sea. And so there they are. They're backed up against the sea and God delivers them through the sea. He uses the sea to then judge and, and pour out his wrath on the Egyptian army. And then what happens in Exodus chapter 15? On the other side of the sea, the nation stood together with Moses and they sang a song, a song of victory. And so here, just like in the Exodus 1.0, in Exodus 2.0, we have God's people standing on or near the sea, right? And what are they going to do? They're going to sing. So who are these people? These are those who had won the victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name. Who won the victory over the beast? It's the people who said, I will not worship this false god. I will not, even though all my neighbors are, even though it's what everybody wants me to do, everybody thinks is right and normal and good, I will not worship the beast. I will not give in to this idolatry. And I will accept, right? I have the mark of the lamb instead of the mark of the beast. I belong to the lamb, not to the beast. And so, yes, I will stand out. And I may actually experience persecution for that. The, the probably here in this verse, the emphasis is on those who gave their lives saying no to the beast. Now think about that for a second. They're victorious because they were martyred. And here's, here's this, this group of people really standing for the church. Those who refuse to bow to the beast, right? There they are standing on the sea victorious and they've got their harps. What is a harp? It is a portable guitar. Like it's a little tiny, you know, like this. It's just a guitar, okay? It's the old school guitar. Listen, we got to rescue the harp imagery in the book of Revelation. You need a harp because we're singing in this vision. There's joy. There's victory here. And so this is, again, it's a picture that, yes, it talks about the wrath of God, but it also shows God rescuing his people here at the, at the end. And here's this, this group of people gathered on the sea. Again, I think it stands for the church. And here's the church saying no to idolatry. And what do they do in verse 3? They sing. Verse 3, they sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, before we get into the song itself, the song of Moses, that's literally from Exodus 15. It's called the song of Moses. You also have a song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 at the end of his life. Okay, so you've got these songs of Moses where he praises God for God's rescuing and delivering work, right? But this is not just the song of Moses. It's been upgraded. It is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Because again, when we think about the the totality of Revelation, the Lamb is the focus, He's the one worthy to break the seals. He's the one who shed his blood to purchase for God people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so they're ultimately in victory, having said no to the beast. Well, the church will sing the song of the Lamb. Exodus 2.0. Now, what is the song? Verse 3. Let's do it. So he says, Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Listen. The, the perplexity that sometimes we live with here, the confusion, 
when we wonder, God, what are you doing? Or how is God going to use us or whatever? We will leave that in the past on this day. Because in this song, we say, great and awe-inspiring are your works, O Lord. Not, that was a head-scratcher, God. Didn't see that one. No, we say, great and awe-inspiring are your works. Lord, we can see now the, the plan. We can see the tapestry in its full beauty and glory. And so we can say, great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. And none of it was wrong. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now listen, this is a beautiful truth, but frankly, right now, we might struggle with that. Because we might go, okay, Lord, I, I'm struggling with this one, and I don't see it. This is, this is not right, it's, it's, you know, and it needs to be made right. But at the end of it all, we will be able to look to the Lord and say, not one second of your reign over this universe were you unjust. Not one second of your reign over my life did you fail to be, to be glorious and to be true and to be righteous. And yes, you're the king of the nations, which means there's not, there's not one geopolitical event that happens, Lord, that's outside of your sovereign reign. He goes on in verse 4, more on the song. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? That's a rhetorical question, right? Everyone will fear God's name in the end. Everyone will see that God alone is worthy of worship. Again, that's the point in the song. For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Now that's basically the the quote we get from the song. But we see here in this song something very important about the new exodus. You see, the new exodus shows God's unique glory. And I'm using that word unique because we have to be able to say that God's glory is not like anything else in the universe. It's his goodness on display. And the new exodus puts that on display. This rescued group, the church, will stand in victory, singing in joy because of the salvation that God has brought to pass. And we will say, Lord, yes, you're just and you're right. You're the king of the nations. Look at the mighty deeds that you have done. Just like in the exodus of old, they sang about how God delivered them. Right? We'll sing it. We'll be excited about it. The new exodus shows God's unique glory. There are portions of this song, this song here in Revelation 15, that quote Jeremiah chapter 10, Psalm 86, Psalm 98, just to name a few. There's a, it's filled with Old Testament language, right? Because what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he'll do in the future. This is where we're headed for sure. So the new exodus shows God's unique glory. But let's ask the question, so what? Well, first of all, it means that to die a martyr's death is not to lose. To die a martyr's death is not to lose. Again, we might think that's the worst possible thing that could happen to me, is that I would be serving the Lord and that somebody would think, you know what, you are such a threat to humanity, I need to kill you. I need to take you out of this planet, right? Or you go on a mission trip, you go to serve the Lord, and and you're killed on that mission trip because of serving the Lord or whatever it is, and you might think that's a loss. But here, it's not loss, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so here, this victorious multitude, in, even in the face of the most difficult persecution we can imagine, even to the extent of having to give their lives, they are the ultimate winners. They are the victorious ones in the end. And the nations, even the nations that put those people to death, those nations will worship the Lord. 
that there are believers purchased from every tribe, including those who so stubbornly resisted. There are stories we could tell. I mean, I could tell you the story of Jim Elliott and his compatriots who went down into the Amazon and went to that people group, the Aka people group, and as they went, it was a cannibalistic, violent tribe, and those missionaries were killed. And I could tell you the story about how the killing of those missionaries actually ended up resulting in the redemption of most of the people in that tribe. It took decades. But great and mysterious are your ways, O Lord. Great and awe-inspiring are your ways, O Lord. And I can tell you with confidence that Jim Elliot, were he standing here today, would tell you it was not a loss for him to give his life. But it was gain. To die a martyr's death is not to lose. Because ultimately, in Christ, we win. Secondly, false gods will be exposed. Part of the content of this song in proclaiming you alone are holy, great and awe-inspiring are your works, is the fundamental statement that no other so-called God is holy and no other so-called God can claim the glory of the true God. False gods, just like in the original Exodus, exposing those gods of Egypt, who would worship a frog anyway? That's a side note, but whatever, right? You know, those gods. You know, and then, but we fast forward today, and you know what the saints are saying today? Who would worship a phone anyway? Who would, who would worship a house, right? Who would worship fashion, a purse, right? The latest, whatever. False gods will be exposed. The scheme of the beast, right? Well, beasts, right? The, the sea beast being worshipped and the land beast fueling that. I mean, the scheme of the beasts will be exposed as just what they are. Manipulation, trickery, deceit. But you should just ask the question today. Would you be at home with this victorious multitude? Or are you more at home with those marked by the beast? It's that love of money, that love of achievement, that love of approval of others, love of pleasure, love of comfort. That's what will get us. I mean, if we lived in Egypt 4,000 years ago, we'd worship frogs too. Because we struggle. This passage is a wake-up call to the church. While we endure the attacks and the schemes of the beasts, this is a call to say, hold on, wait a second. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, be careful that you're not wasting your days flirting with the beast, participating in that idolatry. Will we follow Christ to the end? You know, I, it's worth asking the question. I, I could tell you, we talk with, uh, you know, Sam and Maureen uh, Parsons, our brother and sister that work with Wycliffe and help to recruit uh, people to do some of the work of Bible translation, even some of the technical, like, logistical side of that work. But Sam and Maureen will tell us that every year it's getting harder and harder to find people who are willing to give up their careers to go and serve the Lord full-time in missions. And that is a function of Western culture, where we just don't value the growth of God's kingdom. We love pleasure and comfort, Right? And here's the deal. If we struggle to follow Jesus when it costs us so little, why would you think you'll, you'll follow Jesus when it costs everything? 
I mean, I could tell you the story. I could tell you the story of that Scottish missionary, John Patton, who in the 1800s went to what is today known as Vanuatu, but it, you know, then it was New Hebrides, right? And at, at considerable cost and threat to his life, went and lived a, it, it was so difficult to live on Vanuatu at that time frame. I mean, it was so hard. I, I told you the story about one night, he, one time he, had to, he was hiding from a local uh, chief of a tribe who wanted to kill him, and so they were hunting him. So he ended up climbing a tree, and he spent an entire night in a tree hiding from these people. He said it was the best night of his life. Didn't sleep a wink. But he saw the faithfulness of God as he literally spent an entire night hiding in a tree from people trying to kill him. So there's that. And then here's my thing. I wonder if we're struggling to send missionaries because we're not willing to live without Wi-Fi. I think that's where we are as a culture. We, we don't want to live without Wi-Fi, and so people are, are having to live without knowledge of Jesus Christ and his saving work. Because we won't give up our comfort. You see, this, this display of God's unique glory in the new Exodus, it's also an urgent call to the church to live for what matters right now. Don't give in to those gods, the gods of our age. Don't settle for being just like everybody else when God has called you to so much more. And yes, you might lose credibility with the people in your school. You might lose credibility with people in your workplace if they find out how fanatic you are about following Jesus. But you know what? You don't ultimately lose. Ultimately, you win because you're standing there with the victorious crowd praising God on that sea of glass. Watch verse 5 as the vision continues. After this, after the song, I looked, John writes, and the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of testimony was opened. Okay, now just pause there. Tabernacle of testimony. If you're not up on your Exodus, that's from Exodus 38. The tabernacle was the portable uh, temple that Israel carried around in the wilderness. The testimony is a reference to the word of God. The, the revelation that God gave to his people, the manual for knowing him and living in light of that knowledge, right? So that was kept in the, ta- in the tabernacle. But here the emphasis is on the fact that when, when heaven is opened up, the word of God becomes reality, meaning it, it actually does its work. And so here the heavenly temple was opened, and what? And the word of God is coming to pass. And that word means redemption of his people, yes, absolutely. Salvation, victory, glory for his people, But it also means wrath for the world that has rebelled against him. And so in verse 6, we see, Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes wrapped around their chest. Just a note here on the, uh, the, the costumes of the angels, right? So um, they're, the pure, bright linen with golden sashes. Um, when, when you see, when we watch, sometimes you see a movie, you know, a scary movie or a horror movie, and, um, and the, the the characters sometimes that depicted are depicted pouring out God's wrath and those extreme judgments, even in medieval art, actually, not just movies in Hollywood, you know, they're, they're, they're pictured as really scary, right? And on the one sense, yeah, I mean, it is scary. But why are they wearing like pure, bright linen and, and golden sashes? Because they're God's servants doing God's work. When God's wrath is ultimately poured out on the earth, it's poured out by God's servants doing God's work. Fulfilling his word. 
It's not like, oh, this is some kind of bad thing that's happening. This is a good thing that will happen. Note verse 7. One of the four living creatures, we met them earlier in Revelation, right? Probably other angelic beings. But one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So you have an angelic handoff here, right? So you've got seven angels that are coming out of the temple, but as, and they're dressed in white with these golden sashes. And what are they carrying? They're carrying these bowls. Well, the four living creatures that are around the throne, those four living creatures got these bowls in the heavenly temple, and those bowls are filled with the wrath of God. And so here they give these bowls to these angels. So there's a handoff. God instructs the living creatures to give them to these angels. So here the one angel gives to the other angel, and they've got seven bowls. And now they leave the, the, the heavenly temple to come out and to pour out the wrath of God on the earth. This is divinely sanctioned work that will be happening. It is in no way presented in a negative light. From the biblical perspective, the outpouring of the wrath of God on a world in rebellion against him is a good thing. This this runs so contrary to the way our culture views the wrath and judgment of God. In our culture, the fundamental belief is that God's wrath is unnecessary. That people are not in rebellion against him, if they even believe he exists at all. But here, what do we see? No, we see that in this expression of God's unique glory, the wrath of God is right. It is in perfect accordance with the testimony that is housed in the tabernacle. It's not plan B. It's not, oh, a, an, a rage-driven reaction. It's not, a ra- it's not a divine fit that God is throwing. No, it is actually the perfect response based on God's eternally stable character. When there is rebellion against God, he must deal with it. And in his, in his beauty, he has decreed that he will rescue some, but he will judge others. And when God judges those who are in rebellion against him, it is a good thing. The wrath of God is right. Now, that's that's a big concept for us to wrestle with as we live in, in our culture. But I just want to encourage you this morning that this day isn't here yet. And what does that mean? That means, for the moment... We have time. Time for what? Well, time to say no to those idols, but time to spread this message that you don't have to drink from the bowl of God's wrath, that God has made a way for you to join in the victory song. How does that work? Well, we know how it works. It works because of the Lamb. Remember, this is at the beginning of the chapter, the Song of the Lamb. Well, the Song of the Lamb reminds us of what God has done for us in the Lamb, that Jesus, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when you put your faith in Jesus, God's wrath, God just doesn't say, oh, your, your wrongs were no big deal. He says, no, your wrongs were an eternally big deal, but I've dealt with them on the cross. And that, that death that Jesus offers in our place makes satisfaction for the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid of big words. They're not going to hurt you. I'm going to give you a big word this morning. Propitiation. That is a mouthful. Okay? You don't see that on Christian t-shirts. Uh, 
yeah, propitiation is a translation, it's, it's used in Romans chapter 3 to translate this word that talks about how a sacrificial death removes the wrath of God for the person who, who makes the sacrifice. And in Romans 3, the, the big point there, of course, is that Jesus is the sacrifice. And by faith in him, the wrath of God for our sin is removed. There's another word for that, gospel. <laughs> that is the good news. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe that God is right to be wrathful. You've never trusted in Christ. I would just encourage you to think soberly about the fact that God being the eternally holy creator has every right to judge every aspect of his creation that is in rebellion against him, including us. But because you're hearing this message today, that means you have an opportunity to repent of your sin, and to trust in this glorious Savior. Doesn't mean we understand it all. Doesn't mean we have all the answers for all the the ways God permits injustice to endure temporarily. But it does mean this. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God's justice and His mercy meet. And it's why God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, a couple of practical dangers when we start talking about the wrath of God. Let me just encourage you this morning. The first is, of course, in our culture, we may avoid the topic of God's wrath, okay? We, we might avoid the topic of God's wrath, which means basically just we just don't want to talk about it because we don't want to make people feel weird. And I understand, obviously, we're sensitive to people on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a necessary component of God's revealed word, Right? So we can't just, we're not free to just edit it out and say, oh, this isn't important. Well, it's obviously very important because it's emphasized so much, right? God's wrath is real, and his judgment of rebellion is real. And so we, we need to be bold in our culture and be willing to say that. Now, not in ways that are hateful and not in ways that are disrespectful to others, but in some sense, the very message itself is offensive. And you got to be careful there. Am I being offensive in my delivery of the message, or is it just the message itself, right, that's offensive? So you got to watch that. Secondly, another danger is that we would apologize, that we would be embarrassed because of this aspect of God's character. Now listen, just being candid, right? We will feel that sometimes. We will feel that we need to apologize for Revelation 15 being in the Bible. But brothers and sisters, don't, okay? We don't have to apologize for the character of God. In fact, we should beg God's forgiveness for having adopted such an ungodly mindset where we would think that his judgment, his justice, and his wrath are something that we should be embarrassed of. Okay? It's hard, right? And so again, we're not glorifying in the destruction of the wicked in any way, but what we're saying is that when God reveals this aspect of his character, we need to say, amen. This is a good thing, that God is good and just, and, he, and his judgment will come. Another danger, though, is, and this sometimes happens, where, okay, we're like, yeah, I don't want to avoid God's wrath, and I don't want to apologize for it, so then maybe we might overcorrect and only ever talk about God's wrath, right? This is when you're making sandwich boards about how God's going to judge everybody, and you're wearing them around to work and to the school and all that, you know, and all you're ever saying is God hates, God hates, God hates, and that's not accurate. That is not accurate to just go around telling people God hates, God hates, God hates, because that is not the full story. Yes, God hates sin, and he will deal with sin, and there is a day of reckoning coming. But you know what? The cross proves that God not only hates sinners, but that he loves sinners. 
And so what we don't want to do is we don't want to only talk about God's wrath and overemphasize that aspect of his character to the exclusion of his grace and his love and his mercy. We don't want to rejoice in others' suffering and use, use these passages for manipulation of others and, and really in an abusive way. No, never, never. We want to deliver the truth in love, always. So anytime, even in this passage, I think it's just such a blessing. Even when it ta- God talks about his wrath and, and these bowls filled with his wrath, he also says, but don't forget there's a victorious crowd there that I rescued. And you know what? You could be part of that crowd if you would just trust in me, God says. Well, as the scene unfolds, the seven angels have these seven bowls, and now here they're leaving the, the heavenly temple, right, to bring about the word of God, the final reckoning. But watch verse 8, just here in the conclusion of this scene. John writes what he saw. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This is not the first time in the Bible we read about the temple being filled with smoke. Again, this is the heavenly temple, but actually the earthly temple was filled with smoke. When Solomon finished building the first temple in Israel, uh, actually beyond that, before that, in the the Exodus, when they built the tabernacle, the tabernacle was filled with smoke whenever God met with Moses. His presence was indicated by that tabernacle being filled with smoke. And then you you go forward to Solomon finished the temple and they had the dedication of the temple. The the glory of the Lord filled the temple and that was signified with smoke filling the temple. God's glorious presence being indicated by that smoke. In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel has a vision of God actually leaving the temple to judge his people because of their sin. And that vision, in that vision, what happens? The smoke fills the temple and then leaves the temple in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. That's what happens. And so here... And this vision, as we see the seven angels coming out of the temple in heaven to pour out these bowls of God's wrath on the earth, in the heavenly temple, it's filled with smoke. And John tells us it's from the glory of God and from his power. God's goodness being so evident that you couldn't escape it. Physically, the temple was filled with smoke and no one could go into it until this work was done. And God's power was so clear that you wouldn't dare to have been, should you have been in the heavenly temple or in the, pre, in the area in that moment, you would not have dared try to enter the temple at that moment because of the power of God on display and his presence indicated by the temple being filled with smoke. Yes, the new exodus shows us God's unique glory. And here we see, importantly, that God's greatness, his glory, is all-encompassing. It's meant to fill our field of vision. It fills the temple because it's all that matters. God's glory and his power and him him actually accomplishing the the righting of all wrongs. This is his his goodness on display. And frankly, it's such an important aspect of this vision. Why? Because the heavenly temple is filled with the smoke. And it's like nothing else is going to be able to, we don't talk about anything else until the work is done, right? This is what you need to focus on. And I think it's a way for God to say to the churches scattered in Asia Minor in the first century, listen, I know you're going through a lot right now. But, but listen, when push comes to shove, my glory is what you need to focus on. And that message translates perfectly to us today. I know there's a lot going on in our lives, a lot of different challenges that we're facing. But don't forget that when push comes to shove, it's God's glory and his power that we must focus on. 
It's his goodness that we've got to be captivated by. We read from it in the worship service, but in Isaiah 6, what happens? Isaiah has this vision of the the heavenly temple, and again, the the glory of the Lord fills that temple with smoke. It's this consistent image that, you know what? When I'm really living life the way I was created to live it, God's glory is the central focus of my attention. But we live in the age of distraction, don't we? How many times have you checked your phone while I was preaching? I'm not counting. We get distracted by money. We get distracted by technology, our phones. We get distracted by family stuff going on. We get distracted by politics, Fox News and the other ones. We get distracted by real problems. And you know what? Family, money, politics, those are all, those are a part of life. But here's the question. Will we let Will we let distractions push God out of the center of our focus? Because I'll tell you what, the idea is not that we would retreat from our family life or from finances or from politics. The danger is that Fox News or CNN will set the agenda for your day. The danger is that you will care more about money and Jesus will be a footnote at your funeral. The danger is that all you'll care about is those grandkids getting into the right college and never have you thought, you know what? I want to see the glory of God advanced in my family. I want to see the glory of God accomplished with my finances. I want to see the glory of God in our country, even as it struggles politically and we don't know our right hand from our left. I'm not going to let these other issues distract me from what matters most. People The temple is filled with the smoke of God's glory and his power. What about you? There there has to be a public display of God's goodness in his judgment of rebellion. Otherwise, God's character, basically, you could attack it. You could say, well, God, you didn't actually deal with the wrongs. And so one day, these seven angels will actually carry out these bowls of wrath, and it will go down. And on that day, it will be abundantly clear that God is just and good. I have another friend, John Owen, right? Uh, 1600s, also in in London. John Owen reminds us that this, this outpouring of God's wrath has to be public. Otherwise, again, his glory could be maligned. And so he says there are three categories of, of people that must be judged publicly for God's glory to be seen. The first category is persecutors of the church, right? The the people that killed the martyrs. Those people need to be publicly judged, even in Revelation, because the martyrs cried out in chapter 6, how long, O Lord, until these wrongs are made right? And the point is, it's not an indefinite answer. It's not, well, maybe one day. No, it's like there's a day when they will be judged, right? That has to happen publicly for God's glory to be on display. The second category, though, Owen calls them the scoffers. Those who rejoice at the church's sufferings, even though they're not brave enough to maybe pull the trigger themselves, right? They scoff the Lord. They're obviously vocally against, you know, Jesus and his church, and they're glad to see the church suffer, again, even if they weren't brave enough to actually do the work. But again, the judgment has to be public for God's glory and his goodness to be on display. It's the third category that'll get you, though, from Owen. He calls them the neutralists, middle of the fencers, middle of the fencers, right? He says, they care not for Jesus, 
because they were drugged on lesser glories. They weren't like against the church. They weren't killing Christians. They weren't on Twitter bad-mouthing people, you know, all that stuff. They just were drugged on money or on the career or on whatever else. And they weren't, they didn't seem like they were really bad, but they certainly weren't following the Lord. And even that category must be judged publicly because that's a life that's lived in rebellion against God. You know what Satan has done? He's convinced our culture that it's not rebellion against God. Just be neutral. There's not that much at stake, right? And the Apostle John, in writing down this vision for us, he he says to us, you must, you must remember that the temple is filled with the glory of God. That you, you must remember that that smoke represents God's glory and his power. And we must not be distracted because you may be called to sacrifice for God's glory. You certainly will be called to say no to temptation and to idolatry. God's not going to secretly hold court at the end. It will be a public day of reckoning. And there's a, a takeaway here, I think, just a warning that we should not be distracted. Don't lose sight of what matters most. Just in conclusion, I would draw your attention back to that Isaiah 6 passage because it's such a a parallel here. But people of the new Exodus are not called just to stand and sing of God's praise. We are called to live in light of God's praise. It happened like this in Isaiah, right? As we read. Now here's Isaiah. He's confronted with the glory of God. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then we see God provide that covering from the altar, and his lips are touched, and his iniquity is removed. And that's a foreshadowing of the gospel of what Jesus does for us through the cross. By faith in him, our iniquity is removed, as we were singing about earlier, absolutely. But then the Lord says, whom will I send, and who will go for us? This is a couple different ways to take this, right? Uh, you know, how does Isaiah answer? Well, we all know, here am I, Lord, send me, right? But was it like, I'm the only one here, so I guess I'm the one going, right? I don't think it was that. I think it was a man whose vision was filled with the glory of God. And God said, I'm calling you, Isaiah, to go and do a particular work, to live distinctly from my glory amongst a people that struggle greatly with idolatry, who will go for me? Who will deliver this good news that I have? Who will confront rebellion against me? And with with this field of vision filled with the glory of God, Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. I wonder, is that you this morning? Do you really believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Do you believe to the point that you would say no to the idols of our age? Do you believe to the point that you would sacrifice comforts to see his gospel advance? Do you believe to the point that you would take insults from your friends or neighbors if necessary? Would you even put your life on the line? Because your vision is filled with the glory of God. The crazy thing is you don't have to go far to live for God's glory. You can do it right here. The question is, will you? Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to equip us to do that this week?
Lord, we pause this morning and as we think about this vision of the beginning of the outpouring of these plagues, Lord, these seven bowls filled with your wrath, Lord, we recognize that it's not the only aspect of the story. We praise you that in a world filled with rebellion against you, you are rescuing a people to belong to yourself. Lord, that you were willing to take on flesh, to die on the cross, and you conquered sin and death by rising from the dead to procure for yourself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Lord, we thank you for doing that for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us that you would help us to recognize that should we be called to sacrifice for you, it is not a loss. It's, it's a gain. Lord, we win. Even if we die a martyr's death, we win. And we will sing victorious with your church. Lord, help us to remember that when we're tempted to say no to sacrifice for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be willing to explain the, the goodness of your justice, of your righteousness, of your holiness, and Lord, yes, even of your judgment of the world and your wrath. Lord, forgive us for being embarrassed by this aspect of your character. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for being distracted, for turning good gifts into God's. Lord, for pushing you out of the center of our lives. And Lord, as this heavenly temple was filled with the smoke of your glory and your power, we pray that you would help us to be captivated by your glory. And not to, not to run from this world, but rather, Lord, to live distinctly in it. And we pray that this vision would equip us to do just that. To live in light of your unique glory as we celebrate the Exodus 2.0. Lord, make us your distinct people even now as we go. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.